This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Maybe it's time you called Red Energy on 131 806. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Include us in the conversation. Stop talking, stop treating us like children. Let us know what you're thinking. Take us every step of the way. Explain to us what we need to do and we'll do it. Maybe don't lock us down for another week, but put in these restrictions. They had two jobs to do, Caro. They had a vaccination rollout and they had to look after our aged care community. It just seems like on these two very important areas, particularly in Victoria, they have been lagging. Gillen has changed and his views have changed, but I still think he's struggled to actually implement some of the changes that should have been implemented. Yes, there are a lot of women working at the AFL now, but a large majority of them still leave the AFL disenchanted. The under siege Pies coach looked anything but early Wednesday morning as he and his easy on the eye cosmetic injector girlfriend strode the tan. Easy on the eye, Caro. Are we back in 1968 and it's the truth? Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everybody. This is episode 174 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm coming to you from Melbourne, where we are locked down again, and I'm joined by my friend Corey Perkin. Corey, great to see you. Great to see you on the screen, Caro. I still haven't seen you in person since you've arrived back in Melbourne. I think that I'm the only one of your friends who hasn't had a chance to see you. Oh well, let, well let's have a let's have a walk and a remote coffee later on today. <laughs> Why don't we? Let's do it, Corrie. Let's hey, be positive about the lockdown. Just well, it's a bit hard to be positive at the moment because we're coming to you at a time when we're not sure whether it's going to be extended or not. But it's certainly not letting. It's not looking good. You and I have both had our first vaccinations, and despite the fact that. Things are grim in Melbourne. There's plenty of other things to talk about. So you kick us off. Uh, Well, Cara, lots of correspondence. Thank you, everybody, who has been in touch with us about a raft of issues. But in particular, Cara, lots of people wishing you well uh, as you came out of quarantine and settled home. Um, Lots and lots of love. So much. I just, you know, I mean, am I feeling left out here? No, I'm not at all. But um, Corrie, you steered um, the ship in my absence. Come on. I just wanted to say um, it's great to have you back home. I know uh, it's it, it's been. Um, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about lockdown number four. But it wasn't quite the homecoming that you expected. But at least you're with Brendan and Clem, your daughter, and Queenie, your other daughter. <laughs> I am. I am. Queenie has been, I must say, day one, I was like, I've forgotten about this, you know, the toilet training, the um, nibbling at my shoelaces, the howling at our bedroom door at five o'clock in the morning. Well, by day three, I was totally smitten. She is such a gorgeous little thing. She's nipping away at my feet as we talk. And she's a very funny, playful little girl. And we had a gorgeous, very quiet bit of work over the weekend, but a gorgeous weekend getting to know little Queenie. But, Corrie, I'll just allow me one whinge. I, I got to Amsterdam and Amsterdam was in lockdown. It was coming out of lockdown as I left. I then moved into quarantine where I spent two weeks and I had two days in Melbourne. And obviously the first day I worked at Footy Classified and didn't get home till about 11.30 because we went live. I haven't had a chance to go out. 
I have not had – I did have a drink with the girls on Thursday night. Unfortunately, you couldn't make it. And that, as it turned out, was the last hurrah. Well, Caro, I know. I just I, – I, I mean, you could – like, you have to laugh about it, don't you, really? Because if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Um, I just think – I think you've just had a really tough few weeks. And, uh, look – Will you be out after this Friday? I don't know. We'll talk about that again a bit later. But look, small small pleasures, simple pleasures, Caro, as we always say in lockdown, simple pleasures. You can still go actually go out and go for walks, but you do have to have that blinking mask on your face as you did in Amsterdam. Well, yeah, and, and as and as I said several times last year, footy goes on and there's a lot of stories going on in football. So I'm busy. But what about you? Because you just had all those wonderful winter book arrivals. And um, are you back in the car? <laughs> are you back to delivery? Well, <laughs> what we've noticed about the February snap lockdown, Carol, it's the same thing for what seems to be a snap lockdown now. No one is shopping. So uh, that's not just me. That's me talking to all of my friends, the retailers in our Hawkesburn village. They're all feeling the same thing. They say that their online has really is, is quiet. Um, I ran into my friend Dina who owns a local boutique, Hoofish, and um, yesterday, and she said that uh, there's no one clicking collecting with her, and it seems to be across the board. The cafes, of course, are doing okay, which is great. Bistro Thierry, the restaurant next to me, had all of this food uh, on the weekend, all this fresh food, not just meat and fish, but also herbs and vegetables and everything, perishables, and they were having trouble actually giving it away. So there's a lot of pain and anguish, I think, in the shopping strips of Victoria in retail and, you know, obviously across the board as well. It's been a really tough and difficult few days. It's interesting, and I'm I'm so sympathetic. It is, in, but let's just hope people will remember like last year, and boy, did I realise this in Amsterdam and in quarantine, how important reading is when you're going through something like this. If you can discipline yourself to not wander around in a bit of a daze and actually sit down and get stuck into a book. Gee, that makes life a lot easier. And I've got a cracker to talk about today. Corrie, um, it's interesting the talk on um, in the street, talk back radio. There doesn't seem to be as much anger at the state government this time. It, it is seen as appallingly bad luck. But there is a narrative which is saying include, include us in the conversation. Make yeah. us part of it. Stop talking. Stop treating us like children. Let us know what you're thinking. Take us every step of the way. Um, explain to us what we need to do and we'll do it. Maybe don't lock us down for another week, but put in these restrictions. I'm feeling that really strongly everywhere I go over the last 24, 48 hours. Well, I think you're right, Caro. James Molino, the acting premier, is doing a terrific job. And maybe it's just because the message is coming from a different person. It's not Daniel Andrews. But that's probably a bit superficial of me because I'm tending to wear my comms hat. What are the optics on this new new face? Uh, you like Daniel Andrews, very sincere, very concerned. I thought yesterday there was a whole new tone in the way the government was approaching this. James Molino looked like a man with the weight of the world on his shoulders. I think yesterday's news and what has probably transpired overnight with this growing, with growing numbers, but particularly getting into the aged care system is causing huge worries for everybody. And 
it's difficult not to look to the federal government for that. They had two jobs to do, Caro. They had a vaccination rollout and they had to look after our aged care community. And um, it just seems like on these two very important areas, particularly in Victoria, they have been lagging. Oh, and the third one you could throw in there is quarantine as well. Well, you just wonder why they've only now made it mandatory for people who work in aged care to be vaccinated. Surely that was something that could have been done months ago. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that we have had six months opportunity to actually get a, a system in place. We knew the vaccinations were coming. There should have been in every aged care centre in Victoria, indeed nationally, a plan with government working with the managers and owners of these centres. And then once the vaccination came in, treating staff with the same respect and the same priority as you would the elderly folk who live in these homes. It's just extraordinary that uh, that this wasn't a high priority. And I do think it should be mandatory for people working in aged care. I know that's a current debate at the moment and no doubt today as we speak, which is Tuesday, there'll be a lot of that discussion on our talkback radio. Well, on a positive note, we've been through this before. We know that we can maybe go for a walk to the park and run into a friend with a keep cup full of coffee, brackets, gin and tonic. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, you've got to keep walking. Um, we, we're, we're used to cooking. We've got our markets. I haven't been in my house for over six weeks, so I'm getting to know it again, as well as obviously getting to know my new little puppy, Queenie, and it's very nice to see Brendan again, so that's good. We can still watch the footy, which for a long period last year we couldn't do. Um, and I, I know that later on in the show you're still dreaming of Cornwall two years later and you've got a fabulous tip where that's concerned. So um, we'll try and keep everybody vaguely cheered up. Um, moving on. What, what did you make? Of, what did you make of the ongoing story about the AFL's boys club? Well, uh, first of all, the boys club, which is the title of Michael Warner's new book, the book arrived um, Tuesday or Wednesday last week, from memory, and I Instagrammed it, and we sold all our copies within 24 hours. So we're waiting for new stock, and I gather talking to a couple of bookshop friends. Uh, this is the same situation in their shop. So if anybody says that the AFL is not an interesting story, behind the scenes, you know, a political drama about the AFL is not an interesting story, I would defer them to the sales figures. Uh, I can't help but wonder whether, and, I've, and I read your column uh, on the weekend, Caro, and also I've heard you on the airwaves talking about this in the last few days. My, my uh, The thing that sits with me, I suppose, is this. Is the Gillam McLaughlin of 2021 the same Gillam McLaughlin as 2015? When was he appointed? 2014? Maybe? Seven years. Seven yeah. years. 2014. Is, is he the same person? Does he have the same views about how to run his corporation with regard uh, gender and gender equality and and is he putting in place systems that he would not even thought of 
seven years ago. I suspect he is a changed person and I suspect just looking at, as I did last night, I thought, who is on the board and who is on the executive? There are a few women on the executive, which is good to see. And then if you actually drill down into subcommittees and so on, female board members and female executives are represented uh, quite significantly. No, it's not equal. It's not 50-50, but we're, we're getting there. Uh, I, just, I just wonder whether... Um, this culture is still alive and well and kicking, or maybe Michael Warner is talking about something that was abhorrent and terrible two or three years ago. No, uh, Gillen has changed and his views have changed, but I still think he's struggled to actually implement some of the changes that should have been implemented. Yes, there are a lot of women working at the AFL now, but a large majority of them still leave the AFL disenchanted. Um, a lot of the solutions have been quick fix, putting a senior high-profile woman into a job, like um, Dorothy Hisgrove, um, who interestingly has just joined the Essendon board, even though she was a Collingwood supporter, but she was made head of people and culture and was given a lot of different jobs at the handover time of the Demetriou to McLaughlin regime, and it didn't work out. And in my view and in the view of most people there, she was the wrong choice. Yes, there are three, uh, four women, I think, on the three or four on the AFL commission, but interestingly, when, um, when they announced last year at the time of the coronavirus pandemic closing down the game, this so-called um, COVID cabinet, there wasn't one woman put on that cabinet, not one commissioner, and all the presidents they chose were basically high profile, apart from Andrew Pridham at Sydney, high profile sort of loudmouths really in Peter Gordon and Jeff Kennett and Eddie Maguire. Um, Peggy O'Neill wasn't put on. I mean, I, I would argue why wasn't one woman put on that COVID cabinet? Why when the big, tough, economic, so-called game-changing decisions are made, are women shut out? Why is the Commission really seems to have and has had for more than a decade an A team and a B team? Um, they've been so... And, and Gillan McLaughlin has improved things and he's tried to improve things. But as I've said several times over the past five or six days... It's never been a priority of the Commission and therefore the culture has never really properly changed in the way it should have. And it, it is interesting that women who worked in the integrity department of the AFL and the media department of the AFL and others are now at places like Crown, two have gone to the Melbourne Cricket Club, which, you know, back when we started as young journos, Corrie, you know, they banned women from being members and now they in all their revenue-raising streams, have women at the head of their departments. So they've moved ahead of the AFL. There have been um, the new commercial boss at the AFL, relatively new, a couple of years, Kylie Rogers, is obviously a woman. Tanya Hosh, um, inclusion executive, has had a, a troubled sort of time at the AFL and has had her job, you know, on the line at several times. And, again, it's, it's not just the way they treat women, but it's just a, a culture that is take no prisoners against men and women, really. So, and look, Mick Warner's written a really good book, clearly, and he's a very good journo, but he's an enemy of the AFL. And I, and I do think that a lot of, I do think there's some one-sided stuff in that book. I don't think it's necessarily balanced, but it's well, not meant to be balanced. So that's, you know, understandable. I would agree with you on that, Cara. My feeling is, reading the book is, um, and given uh, Michael Warner's connection with, News Corp, and given the way The Australian has actually been covering this story too on the weekend, 
Do you think News Corp has it out for Gillian McLaughlin that, that they are, are, are really trying to force him to step down? No, no. I think there was a campaign against him a few years ago, which was run by oh, that dreadful um, gossip column, you know, and writing stuff and not naming names and turned out nothing could be stood up and, and, un, and proven and probably wasn't true. So um, they dropped off. But that almost, I remember Richard Goiter saying that he was prepared to fly to New York and meet Rupert Murdoch to stop that campaign. Um, that was after the Essendon drug scandal, but not necessarily linked. I think now, um, I, I think Mick Warner, I think there are others at the Herald Sun who have a very good relationship with the AFL. Mick Warner doesn't, and I'm not criticising him for that, but he is, he's been very strong in his criticisms of what the game has done, and everything in the book is pretty accurate, but the nuance I don't always agree with. I do agree that Jess Halloran articles in The Australian have been very damaging because whenever words like hush money come into it, you know, it's it, – and, and, and again, the AFL has vehemently denied this. What about Jeff Kennett, though? What about Jeff Kennett? Having sat on the Seven West Media Board at the time of the Amber Harrison scandal with Tim Warner and what, the way they treated her – now coming out and being the great friend to all these so-called bullied women. I find that extraordinary. Well, maybe he's changed. <laughs> I don't know. Look, don't get me don't get me started about uh, about men who, uh, you know, talk the talk but can't walk the walk. You see it a lot in business. They they think that they mouth the platitudes. They say it. They think they're saying the right thing, but in fact, you scratch a new man, Caro. What do you find underneath? An old <laughs> man. Carol, I just want, I just wanted your thoughts quickly on um, our, our our friends at the Outer Sanctum, the Outer Sanctum podcast. We hope that many don't shoot the messenger listeners do tune into that. They produce a terrific weekly footy show. A group of women, we've had a couple of them on our show on our podcast in the past, and they announced last week that they were leaving the ABC from where they have been producing their podcast the last few years, and they're going out on their own, and. Um, and part of it is because they want to build platforms and pathways to one of the outer stories of football and amplify women's sport and voices, which made me wonder whether the ABC Grandstand gang had been totally supportive of them and given them the support that they wanted. But, look, I just to, to Emma and Lucy, Kate and all the gang, we just want to send our regards, uh, Nick, and just say all the best. We hope that your Outer Sanctum podcast flourishes in your own managerial hands. I'm sure it will, and I, clearly there were issues with the ABC or they wouldn't have left, but um, we might have to do a, another, um, you know, what, what did we do with them last time? Mash-up, Caro. A mash-up, that's right. Mash-up. Well, we will because um, they're such brilliant broadcasters. I, I, wanna, I just want to say one last word upon Gillan McLaughlin. He would be deeply hurt about all these conversations and he, he wouldn't understand why it's happening, which tells you that he is trying to fix the problem, but he just doesn't really quite understand how to do it. And that is what, why, the, why, even though he has been a brilliant CEO of the AFL, he needs a strong chairman to guide him at times. And I'm just not sure he's, necess- he's had support from Richard Goiter, but not always strength. Anyway, Corrie, on that note, let's go and have a drink. The Cocktail Cabinet, of course, is brought to us by Prince Wine Store, bringing Melbournians the greatest wine in the world. Please visit Prince Wine Store, particularly now.com.au, and use the promo code MEXX in capitals. 
that is like short for messenger to uh, receive a listener discount when you check out online. You'll find the links in our show notes. So welcome, Miles. And what are we talking about this week? It's World Cognac Day on the 4th of June. I thought we'd maybe delve into uh, cognac a little bit and I've got a great little one to uh, talk about this week as well. Brilliant. I don't, I've never really been a cognac drinker, but I'm sure that I would enjoy it if I gave it a go. It, cognac is like brandy, isn't it, Miles? Yeah, so I guess the best way to look at it is that all, all cognac is brandy, not all brandy is cognac. So it's a great base spirit. Um, it's aged in a barrel and it has certain rules around how, how it can be made and aged. Um, but it all has to come from region of cognac and, of course, armagnac as well, which is a, a richer, sort of rougher style but they're regions essentially, but yes, they're all brandy. And what, what recommendations have you got for us from Prince? Well, look, I've got this one that I, it's, it's my go-to and for a cognac, it's, you know, I think fantastically priced. It's called Frederick Mestral Cognac and it's VS, which is a, a very special, which is an aging type. So it's a young cognac. It's aged for about two to four years on average in barrels. And it's this really sort of pretty lifted style cognac it has these lovely fully sort of fresh notes and a little bit of kind of burnt butter and caramel. They're really, it's a really wonderful sort of introduction to cognac if you've never had it and not too sort of heavy or rich or too, yeah, beautiful little drink. When I started my cooking life in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, cognac and brandy were everywhere. Steak Diane uh, was such a 70s dish, um, crepe Suzette, which I never cooked but I used to love. And remember Caro Brandy Alexander's? You'd go to the pub and you'd order a Brandy Alexander. Oh my God, there was so much sugar and cream in it. But the thing about brandy was that it just, or cognac, is it's so flavoursome. Those flavours that you're talking about there take me right back to my 25-year-old self um, and thinking about making a steak Diane, which was rich and so caramelly and beautiful. I wonder why cognac has gone out of cooking. Is it prohibitive in price maybe, or it's just not the way we eat anymore? Yeah, I'm not sure. It could, it could be a sort of a price thing. It's certainly getting more popular. Spirits in general are getting a, a lot more popular sort of in the market. I think people are starting to realise that the same things I love about wine and beer, those kind of craft styles, you know, small juices, handmade sort of products, you know, people sort of working the land and, and making these things. I think they're starting to see the value in that and they're starting to sort of see that value come back into sort of cognac. And, and I think the high alcohol and health thing can be a problem as well. You know, that high alcohol, people are trying to avoid it as well. So it could be a few reasons why it sort of fell out of fashion. So, Miles, is the, when, when is the best time to have a cognac after a meal? I would, I would have it after a meal. You know, the nice thing about that that alcohol in it is it kind of, you know, gives, gives your stomach a little bit of a burn and it kind of helps it settle it almost um, if, you, if you've had some of those, 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 uh, those like German sort of, um, those herb-infused things like Jägermeister and things like that. It kind of has that same effect. And just, you know, beautiful and sort of warming as well, just that lovely winter sort of warming. But that's kind of why I chose it. I thought it was a perfect for this cold weather. Brilliant. Well, uh, and so tell us some... Um how our audience can get one and what they should be choosing. Just tell us again and um, we'll get them to do it through the MEWS code. Yeah, so it's the so Frederick Mastrout, yes, Cognac. It's, a, it's $110, but your listeners will get 10% off um, if they just go through to the Don't Shoot the Messenger page on the um, website, which is the current office section. 
um, and put it into your cart and whatever else you want. Got all the wines and other bits we've talked about over the last couple of months. And then the code is M-E-S-S for Don't Shoot the Messenger and you'll get the 10% off uh, everything in the cart. Um, Miles, I want to thank you for my last little delivery of uh, Prince Wine Store. Quite a selection, really. <laughs> Quite a few bottles in the box. But last night I had, I enjoyed yet another bottle of Pressing Matters, the 2017 Riesling from Coal River Valley in Tasmania that we, that you put me onto. I had it with the recipe, actually, that I'm going to be mentioning later in the show. But what a fine Riesling that is. Yeah, they're fantastic ones. And they've sort of been sort of one of the originators as far as Tassie Riesling goes. You know, they and they make a fantastic selection, lots of different styles as well. Yeah, they're, they're great wines. And Tassie produces some really great Riesling. Like it's, it's, I really love a lot of Tassie Riesling. Yeah, I'm with you. That's wonderful, Miles. Well, we're all going to have a crack at cognac this week, and I think we all need it, and it sounds absolutely beautiful, and I'm not sure I'm going to wait until after the meal. And that was a cocktail cabinet. Now, Corrie, it's time for, thanks to Ed Energy, Crush of the Week, and you have a massive crush. It is a massive crush, Caro, because there are actually three. It's a trio of crush in my case. I want to um, I want to congratulate the three Australian fiction writers, Stephen Conti, Kate Grenville, and Pip Williams, who have made the shortlist of the internationally renowned Walter Scott Award for Historical Fiction. Now, Caro, you probably are not familiar with this award, but people in the global literary community are. It was named after Sir Walter Scott, the famous 19th century English, or Scottish, I should say, poet, author. He is is often regarded as the father of the novel. He wrote the first novel, Ivanhoe, Waverley, Rob Roy, all those wonderful classics. And this prize... Uh, came into being a few years ago and it's privately funded by a family who believe in the importance of historical fiction and the winner receives £25,000, which is roughly about $45,000 Australian. And it is absolutely extraordinary that of the five finalists on the shortlist, three of them are Australians. Now, Caro, our Beloved Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell is one of them and The Mirror and the Light by Dame Hilary Mantell is also on the list. But then, whoa, ho, ho, The Tolstoy Estate by Aussie Stephen Conti, A Room Made of Leaves by Aussie Kate Grenville, The Dictionary of Lost Words by Aussie Pip Williams. Wow. I am feeling just a little bit proud about this. And when you consider that previous winners of this award have included Hilary Mantel herself for Wolf Hall, Sebastian Barry, who you and I love, Simon Moore, Andrea Levy, I mean, it's just an amazing achievement. Now, the winner of this award, they haven't actually given us a date yet, Caro, because I gather in the UK they're hoping they're going to have a live event and they, London, as you know, is coming out of lockdown, so they're trying to work out when the award will be announced, but it will be later this month. I will tell all our messengers who won the award, but let's just, fingers and toes crossed that one of the Aussies will win. And I know a lot of potties will have read in particular The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams because it was the best-selling novel in Australia last year in 2020. Gee, that's um, that's wonderful news. Um, you're being optimistic about London coming out of lockdown because that um, third wave they're predicting has seen caution in the health departments um, 
in the UK and some advice that they should perhaps, what they're saying 21st of June, they want to open up completely. I'm not quite sure that will happen now. And they have 3,000 cases a day at the moment in the UK, Caro. It's extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary. I know. And the problem is it's very, very, you know, rampant and very dangerous Indian strain. But, you know, I guess a lot of them have been vaccinated now and more and more every day. So let's hope it continues. That was Crush of the Week, Corrie, a great crush. I haven't read any of those books, so that's something to do <laughs> over winter, if, if nothing else. Um, Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. And now um, I am going to kick off BSF with Akin, a book by Emma Donoghue. Now, I'd never read Emma Donoghue, but I remember you saying that Room was a very successful seller at your shop. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, Kara. So she is, um, an Amer- I think she's American, a uh, youngish author who just jumped onto the bestseller list with her book a few years ago, Room, which was, of course, an extraordinary story of a, uh, of a young girl who had been kidnapped and hidden in the basement of a house for years and years and actually had a little boy uh, to the person who had the perpetrator of the crime. And this book, Akin, has been a bit A-K-I-N, in case people can't hear what I'm saying there, um, hasn't done so well. It came out maybe about three months ago. I haven't read it. I'm desperate to hear what you reckon. I really liked it. I bought it at the at an English bookstore in Amsterdam because I just was looking for a book to read and I thought it looked good and I, I knew her name. It's a great story. It's a re- it's, gee, it's um, it, it's very sad. It's also very uplifting. It's a story about family. It's basically the story of a road trip between a man who's about to turn eighty and the grandson he has never met before and um, wasn't even, well, anyway, look, the, the reason these two get together is due to a series of family tragedies and this man is basically, he's been recently widowed, he's decided to go back to Nice to do, well, he hasn't really articulated this, but stuff went on in his family background that he can't quite understand. He's come across some strange photos um, that his late sister had kept and he finds them under the bed in a whole lot of storage stuff and he can't understand them. We're talking a famous artist back in France, back in the time of pre-World War II and World War II, a family divided during the war, um, suggestions of maybe some um, collaboration that might or might not have happened And this man, this man who's about to turn 80, who was a New Yorker, is trying to work out why he was sent to New York by his mother to live with his estranged father and his mother didn't come with him. Um, A sister was born some years later and she, in fact, is, sorry, she is the grandmother of this child, this man who's taken overseas and he is, in fact, sorry, the great uncle. It is a great story about an old person and a young person in France and I really, really recommend it. It's not a romantic trip to Nice. A lot goes wrong. And they, these two people could not be more different. But, oh, yeah, I couldn't put it down. It, it, sounds, it sounds great. And, it, you know, it, again, it makes you want to travel, but it doesn't romanticise it. And um, the generation gap between these two men, this boy glued to his phone who's a bit of a punk and, and clearly very damaged, um, oh, the, the the dialogue is, and yet he helps guide this man to sort of retrace some of the mysteries of his past. So um, I won't tell you any more, but 
there's some amazing revelations. So I would really recommend Akin. I really would. I, 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 reading the synopsis, I thought it sounded more interesting to me than Room. And I, I haven't read Room, I can't say, but I really liked it. Um, Caro, your your screen this week, I was trying to get onto this on the weekend and I don't know, it's so funny in lockdown, you tend to be, I don't know, busier. It's weird. It's weird. I just never, I didn't, I thought, oh, look, I have a couple of hours to watch Mayor, uh, Mayor of Easttown with starring Kate Winslet, but I just didn't get there. But you have, so give us a synopsis. Well, you, you, it's funny you talk about how I found it because, of course, having spoken about downgrading Foxtel, as my husband insisted, a month or two ago, I realised that we downgraded it to the point we couldn't get Fox Showcase. So guess what? We upgraded again. <laughs> I think now's a good time to do that, Corrie. It is on Fox Showcase. It's also on something called Binge that I have not worked out how to use. As you say, it stars Kate Winslet as a cop, an American cop, She's really, really good in this. Um, she has one of the more complicated, worrying family setups you could possibly imagine. It's a seven, I think it's a seven-part show. We watched three in a row. We loved it so much. Incredibly gritty, very real life. Her family circumstance, as I say, you, you're trying to piece it together in the first 10 minutes. There's a, um, a daughter. There is a son who is dead. There is a grandson, Kate Winslet is a grandmother. There is a mother who has a real predilection for drinking cocktails late in the afternoon who's moved in. There is an estranged husband who lives over the road and is about to remarry. It is so, and the mother of like her, her, her late son's partner who is the mother of this child who's trying to get custody. Um, halfway through episode one, Guy Pierce bobs up in a bar as a visiting English fellow, a writer who has taken up residency at the local university. Um, he develops a relationship with Kate Winslet. It's so funny. You go, oh, my God, what's Jack Irish doing in this show? <laughs> um, which is about to start again, thank God. What a perfect time in a lockdown. It's um, the, 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 the case, the main case is about this too. There's a, a girl who disappeared a year ago and the mother who played in the local basketball team with Kate Winslet's character, um, whose name is Mayor, M-A-R-E, which is why it's called, not M-A-Y-O-R, she's not the mayor, she's a cop called M-A-R-E. Um, there's, there's that girl who's disappeared and the mother believing the cops have, you know, dropped the ball on the case. And in the first show, there is a tragic death of a young single mother whose story you start to learn a bit about before she dies. And um, she's found dead in a, you know, shallow sort of swampy sort of area outside of town. Um, Mayor's family is involved. Mayor's on the case. There's a new young cop who's come to town on the case and he's not all what he seems. Oh, you can't stop. You cannot uh, stop. So, Caro, I heard in one review I was listening to on a podcast, they said that Kate Winslet is not the beautiful elegant Kate Winslet, who we see on the red carpet, that indeed uh, she's probably put on a bit of weight for the role. I can't imagine her being frowsy, but that was the suggestion. But how does she um, how does she nail the American accent and the Americanness? Because we associate her so much as a British actor. How does she how does she go playing a Yank? Oh, she's totally believable. Um, she's still, you know, 
you wouldn't say she's plain, but she does everything possible to make herself look plain. She, um, she hasn't got much money. She clearly has financial issues. She's got a terrible family life. She does nothing. She doesn't wear makeup. Her hair, you know, she does absolutely nothing with it. And obviously she's getting older as well. It sounds like me in lockdown, Carol. (laughs) And um, her American accent is flawless. Um, She's a very good actress, Kate Winslet. At times she's overacted in the past. But I think overall I would say she's one of our great actresses. And she does. I'm so glad she's done this show because, you know, so many of our great performers have have moved to TV and she's absolutely brilliant and it's a great show. She was the only good thing about that uh, much overhyped movie starring Jack Black, Jude Law, uh, oh, uh, Cameron Diaz. You know, remember I when Cameron Diaz? Yeah. I loved Holiday. We watch it every Christmas and cry. Oh, come on, Corrie. You old curmudgeon. <laughs> I loved Holiday. Can't we just have a bit of a skate once in a while? And oh. it was just the most improbable setup. It was like Cameron Diaz, the only place she could go for Christmas was this lot and happens to run into Jude Law as the widowed father next door. Hey, <laughs> Christmas bonbon, look what's come out of the bonbon there. It was so improbable. It, it was a bit improbable, but isn't that what we love about Christmas movies? Anyway, speaking of improbable, we're not going to get back to Cornwall for a while, but you have found a great way to get there, well, remotely, I suppose, Corrie. Yeah, well, I'm definitely going back to Cornwall and Devon. They are on my list when we can travel, and I have been inspired by this book, which I am holding up to the camera. And, oh, what uh, a beautiful cover. Which no one can see, of course. This arrives, this arrives in bookshops this week. Potties. It's called Sea and Shore Recipes and Stories from a Kitchen in Cornwall. It's by Emily Scott, who lives most of the year in Cornwall and part of the year in Bordeaux because her partner is also a winemaker as well as an artist. So they have this gorgeous life where they slip between uh, between the two places. But, uh, Caro, I've cooked a couple of things out of this. I received an advance copy from our dear friends at Hardy Grant an Australian publisher which has published an English and, and supported and nurtured an English book, which is fantastic. But I wanted to tell you and the potties about what I cooked last night. So a bit of an horrendous day. Have to say, feeling a little flat about the world in general. Did my book deliveries. Didn't get home till about six o'clock. And I had called into a shop to pick up some crab meat because I'd thought if I have time or if I feel like it, I will make this recipe. And so in about 20 minutes, I had the most beautiful dinner prepared for us here. And the recipe, this will be one close to your heart, Caro, Cornish crab linguine with chilli, lemon and parsley. Now, Yum. I've made something similar, but I'd love to know. Oh, look, it looks beautiful. So we will, and I can honestly tell you, the food styling in this book is sublime, but my dish looked every bit as good as that one. Accompanied by a glass of wine, the wine I mentioned to Miles in our discussion before. But this recipe, Miss Jane, of course, will put this on the show notes as she does every week. But all you do, Caro, is you cook up, cook up your pasta and while it's boiling, you put the crab meat in a large bowl with chilli, parsley, lemon juice and zest 
and stir it all together. And then you drain the pasta, but reserve a little bit of the water and then put that crab mixture back into the hot pan, toss it all around with a bit of oil and then heaps of Parmigiana Reggiano um, and lots and lots of black pepper. You do want this to be quite moist not too dry. The wonderful thing about the crab meat, as you know, because you love crab, is it is quite a strong meat. Don't worry as you're putting the meat into your bowl that perhaps for two or four of you, you might have too much crab meat. It's going to overpower. It actually, as you know, Kara, how crab can kind of, it, it almost dissolves. Yep. It almost, um, it just falls apart. So it's not like you're I, eating big you bits of crab meat. You know, cry back. You can, Caro, but I actually at the local fish shop they had it in a in a jar, uh, which is actually inside the jar is a tin top. So it's um, and I found it a, a fan, it, I think it was about twenty dollars, so it wasn't exactly inexpensive, but it certainly fed the two of us. It was absolutely perfect. But you, however, you want to get your crab, um, go go to your local uh, fishmonger and organise it. But this dish. I swear to God, it took me about 15 minutes to prepare and I felt like I was at a restaurant. A lot of the recipes in this uh, in by Emily Scott are, are as easy as this. Her whole philosophy is keep it simple but just use the fresh produce of your area, which, of course, in Cornwall is lots of seafood and lots of uh, vegetables and so on. So love this book. See and sure. It will be in your bookshops this week. It is a new June release and I would urge everybody to get it and that's the recipe and it'll be on our show notes. I love the way you're saying holiday is incongruous and romantic. You're saying these people divide their lives between Cornwall and France. She's married to a surfer and an artist. They now are based in Cornwall. I'm sorry, Corrie, but is it, can they be true? Their life sounds too perfect. So a surfer, an artist, and a winemaker. Oh, Caro. So she has three. She has three kids. I think from a previous relationship. I'm not sure about the backstory of that. Interestingly, this book, Sea and Shore, is quite autobiographical by Emily. I haven't read all of the stories, but I will. But um, I, I just think it's a it's a it's a cookbook that for Victorians in particular, there's a there's a real connection between the produce that you find in Cornwall and indeed the climate, I would suggest, and what we have here. And um, I reckon it's an absolute winner. I cannot speak more highly of this book. And given that it's somebody's birthday next week, that somebody, if she's a very good little girl, might actually receive a copy of this. I was actually, it's funny, my mind was going in exactly the same direction. I love the fact that I know there's, he does drawings of his favourite walks and stuff. And um, I noticed that one of her favourite walks starts at Port Isaac, which, of course, is the mythical Port Wen in Doc Martin. So um, where we more did the south coast, didn't we? But this sounds like a lot of the north coast of Cornwall. So I'm dying to have a look at it. I can I can hear your Billy barking. Could you please give her good podcast behaviour before we re remotely record again next week? She's actually called Queenie, not Billy. I'm sorry. But oh, my God. I'm sorry. No, that no we lost it. We lost Billy. She's had to be put outside because she was biting my feet. So you just. Gosh, I, I, I'm sorry about that. I think I'm going to be doing that for probably two years. So sorry about that. That's all right, Corrie. I've, I've built, Brendan has called her Billy accidentally before as well. <laughs> now, um, that was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Remember, Corrie, we call 131806 for real Aussie energy. And Melbourne based the Melbourne-based team will, of course, help you out. Now, you're grumpy, Caro. 
Well, it's pretty simple why I'm grumpy. Uh, last week you said to me what was I most looking forward to when I came out of quarantine. One was um, the New York trilogy, which was the Australian ballet, which I was going to on Thursday night, cancelled, and the date they've given me to go to it later on in the year, if things go well, I'm going to be away at my cousin's 60th. I'm grumpy about that. The other thing I told you I was looking forward to was um, spending my birthday with friends. Hadn't made any firm plans, but that doesn't look like that's going to happen. And the third thing was going to the Dreamtime game at the MCG. That's not happening either. So I'm feeling a bit gypped this week, Corrie, and I know it's the first world problem, but that is making me grumpy. Now, um, you can kick off again for Red Energy. Uh, quick questions to round up the show. Okay, I was interested you wanted me to ask you this one, Caro. Should the Golden Globes be scrapped? Look, I um, read a really interesting article about this the other day in which our very own, well, we think he's our own, we love him, he doesn't know us from Adam, David Stratton, thinks um, they've run their race and they deserve to be scrapped. He tells the story of going over and being a judge at the Golden Globes and going to functions in Los Angeles and meeting journos who claim to be representing Russian media, African media, other parts of the world, had wrote for these tin pot publications which did not represent their countries at all and had not really written for their countries in years and years and years. Obviously, they've had the great diversity scandal, which they still haven't fixed, and they've had so few, rep well, so few black representatives for a start. Um, they went out of their way, it seems, to, um, you know, make certain actors, male and female, win awards this year, but it smacked of tokenism to me. And I think that although um, they put on a great show, I think too much of Hollywood, the Foreign Press Association, has been a fraud and um, the movie industry has it's basically turned a blind eye to it because um, it served their purposes. So I'm, I've never thought I'd say this, Corrie, but I think they need to get proper representation or go. Anyway, now... Yeah. Um, Good one. What small step for woman, one huge step for womanhood happened last week? For the first time in its 228-year history, Caro, the Louvre in Paris appointed a woman to be its first female director. Laurence Descartes, who is currently the head of the Musée d'Orsay and the L'Orangerie, which as you know, we've discussed this before, we love those two museums. She has just been picked by Emmanuel Macron, the president. She's going to head up the Louvre. So this is the first time since the Louvre was created in 1793. Now, some people might go, oh, well, you know, fair enough, like that's changed, whatever, whatever. I can remember, Caro, when I was working in the museum's sector back in the early 2000s, that we were all appalled well, women particularly, were appalled at how few women there were uh, heading up art galleries when, in fact, so many women made up curatorial staff, managerial staff, programming staff. And, and I, I just thought for the purposes of this story, I'd have a little look around the country, our country, and see what's going on. Of all our major galleries, Caro, only one at the moment is run by a woman, and that's Rana Davenport, who's at the Art Gallery of South Australia. The NGV here in Melbourne, Art Gallery of New South Wales, Queensland, Art Gallery of Western Australia and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory, all run by men. So I think uh, the appointment of Laurence Descartes, hopefully it will start a new tide 
of uh, gender equality in the art sector. Caro, we're on a bit of an arts roll now. Um, well, let's change it completely. I'd call that an editorial, not a quick question, but well done. <laughs> You've made your point. Um, what views do you have on Greg Norman coming home to Australia to live? Well, I think it's re- this is a really interesting story. He almost placed an ad in the News Corporation press over the weekend <laughs> saying he wanted to, um, well, hinting that he'd really love to head up Australia's Olympic golf team. He's never been asked. He'd love to do it, big captain of that team. He'll be back in not less than two years, but um, certainly within five years, winding up a lot of his American business interests, wants to end his last days in Australia. Really interesting when you think about the absolute compound he's set up in Florida and how long he's been there for. And obviously it was married to, originally married to an American who was the mother of his children, who have been raised Americans, I guess. Um, He's become a bit of a figure of fun, hasn't he, Greg Norman, ever since those nude posing shots on Instagram. But when you, you know, he is a national treasure. I mean, he has been an absolutely wonderful ambassador for Australian golf and he's such a, he's been such a champion, such an enduring champion. So I look forward to seeing the great white shark coming home. Now, he looks forward to seeing you too. What newspaper report last week prompted you to vent via social media? What what was this? I was so angry about that report by Alice Costa in the Herald Sun, <clears throat> which said, and and in defence of Alice, these may not have been her words. A sub-editor may have changed it, but she was talking about Nathan Buckley's new relationship with Alex Pike. Oh, Corrie, I had a crack at her on Footy Classified about that last week and she wrote a really nasty article about me on Saturday. Isn't that amazing? Great minds. Well, Caro, it said, and this is just to quote, like the two of them were spotted out together, which is absolutely, I don't, you know, there's no one has a problem with that. That's fine. Nathan Buckley's marriage to Tanya is over. That's okay. The kids know that's fine. Alex Pike seems like a very nice person. Alice Costa wrote in the Herald Sun, the under siege pies coach looked anything but early Wednesday morning as he and his easy on the eye cosmetic injector girlfriend strode the tan. Easy on the eye, Caro. Are we back in 1968 and it's the truth? That's exactly exactly what I said last Wednesday night. I don't know if you saw the um, column on Saturday. um, Brendan read it out to me. He read it online, Um, having a crack at me for being... um, morally outraged and how ridiculous and uh... right well I want to tell Alice Costa one thing and in fact it's a bit of a shame I I I, I sent an I was so enraged I sent an email to our friend Margie Easterbrook who is the opinion editor of The Age who who said to me once you know if you've got any great ideas let me know she might rue the day and I said look I'm ready to write something about this Margie as an old girl in newspapers this is appalling we fought against this sort of journalism for years the fact that it's one of the sisterhood doing it. Margie said, look, unfortunately, no, we're kind of all all booked up with COVID stories and lockdown stories. So I missed my chance to go public. But uh, I just wanted to say to Alice Costa that there are generations of women reporters who have been in newsrooms since the 1940s, 1950s, and we have fought hard against this kind of language. And it has to stop. You cannot let this be part of your copy. You cannot say that sort of thing. It is just not appropriate to call someone easy on the eye. In a, she in defended a, herself by saying she does the same. No one cares when she does it about one of the Hemsworth brothers. And um, 
they chose the words easy on the eye because it, it, was, it rolled off the tongue with the rest of the sentence. And he, this is a very attractive woman and how ridiculous and how, you know, holier than now was I. So he doesn't agree, the old Alice. Well, it, it's, 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 in, it's absolutely apparent in the photographs, of course, that, um, that Ms Pike is actually a very attractive woman. We don't need to say that. We don't need to say that. So, and and we don't need to say that about the Hemsley brothers. Anyway, that, that's yeah, yeah, whatever their names are. Um, now, tell me about Naomi Osaka. Oh well, it, it's not really a quick question, but um, you, I mean, what what about her? You know, she's been oh, kicked well, out. My, of question, my question to you yesterday was going to be: Is she being precious for refusing to do the French Open press conference? But she's actually now walked out of the tournament. Yeah, well, well, she's fallen out completely with um, the directors of the tournament. Um, look, I don't think she's being precious. I can understand that. You know, you're going to get people hiding behind the blanket of um, the cloak of mental illness to avoid doing press conferences in future, and that's what they're worried about because um, the relationship with sponsors is so important. I know it's a red herring and not relevant that some of these press conferences are like watching paint dry and just absolutely dreadful, but I, I would just say that um, I love it that tennis authorities have finally grown some balls and have basically fallen out and kicked out one of the greatest players in the world for not attending press conferences when they've let people like Serena Williams and, oh, look, so many players in the past get away, it got, dating back to John McEnroe, get away with the bullying of ball boys and line judges and adjudicators, and yet, you know, they finally really stand up and show some metal over not doing press conferences. I guess it was inevitable, and she didn't have much support from any of her tennis sisters or brothers, but extraordinary story. Now, to um, close off, Corrie, which new season fashion item are you eyeing off for a post-lockdown try-on try and purchase? Well, I've decided I need a new pair of shoes or boots. I mentioned earlier my friend Dina at Hoofish in Hawksburn Village, and I said to Dina uh, a few weeks ago, I need to get a new pair of sneakers for winter. I need a new black pair. And she said, oh, sneakers is so last year, Corey. They're so out of fashion. I was devastated because I now have about three pairs that, I, as you know, Carol, I wore to death last year and the year before, thinking I looked rather smart. Not anymore. The whole thing now is combat boots. Oh, no, I just bought some sneakers as well. It took me yeah. two years to get, get, get over that one. No, you're, you're, you're out of touch, Dale, out of touch. The combat boot, I have seen a couple of lovely pairs. Uh, <laughs> they're not inexpensive, Carol. Bash have a fantastic pair for $799. I won't be going oh, there. Dina says she has a nice pair there that's not, not as expensive as that. I think I'm going to have to save up, but I do feel I need a new pair of boots. And I thought, well, I really do love that combat look. So that's what I'll be doing, Caro, to be fashionable and on trend. Just exactly what Corrie is combating remains to be seen. That was Don't Shoot the Messenger for this week. Thank you, Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. And, of course, Prince Wine Store. Now you can connect Corrie with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, just hit the sign-up button on Facebook or in our show notes or send us an email and we'll subscribe you. And that email is feedback at dotshootpod.com.au. And Corrie... Don't shoot the messenger.
This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Maybe it's time you called Red Energy on 131 806. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. For all things home design, enjoy Homestar with me, Shana Blaze. All the ideas and inspiration you need for your home, DIY design projects and expert advice. Red Energy's podcast lifestyle series, available from wherever you get your podcasts and the SEN app.